0: Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one for God Himself. For God Himself has given us right standing with Himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and He is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, Neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Claire, and thank you, Megan, and... Matthew, Matthew wrote that liturgy, by the way, Um, and I always ask him during special times of the year uh, to write liturgies for us. I could always uh, look up in the Book of Common Prayer or some other prayer books that I have and there are beautiful liturgies, but I really love when our liturgies and our responsive readings are coming out of our community. Um, And so Matthew often offers those things for us. So thank you all. Uh, uh, Fifth grade fifth grade, that is the year when the kids with the nice shoes, at the time they were Reebok pumps, Shaquille O'Neal was pushing them, Uh, that was when the kids with the nice shoes became popular, and the kid with the imitation Reebok pumps, well, everyone could tell they were imitations. It was yet one more year that my family was moving again. I don't know, my stepfather lost his job, maybe he failed a drug test, maybe factory closed down, maybe he just got fired. It was always one of those things. But it's really hard when you're around fifth grade and you move yet again, and you're not only the new kid, but you're also the poor kid. I remember, I, I have this sort of um, charisma that I had even in fifth grade that I, that I got from my mother. This charisma is not just natural to me, by the way. I inherited it. I got it from my mother, just an easygoing goingness with people, but it's a lot to overcome when you're new and you're poor. And so I remember thinking, okay, how, how can I figure out how to fit in? How am I going to make friends? And even as early in fifth grade, I was like, how can I figure out how to make a girlfriend? And I realized I had next to nothing going for me, but I did have one thing. I could be funny. The charisma combined with a quick brain for certain things, I could be funny. And so I became a student of Beavis and Butthead, studying them as if they were a sacred text. Around the same time, I was a disciple of Matt Groening's Simpsons cynicism, and believe me, humor. Can take you a long way when you're the new kid and you're the poor kid because humor can distract people from your clothing and it can stop them from judging you before you have a chance to give them a certain impression. My self-message was essentially this, that your value, what you contribute to life is humor. Lose that and you have nothing. I believed that all the way through my adolescence and even into young adulthood. I remember when I first started preaching, my goal was to be the funny preacher. Because I thought that like, if I were funny, then you would like me more. I am not saying that All funny people are compensating for insecurities. I'm saying that that's how I used humor. I think to varying degrees, though, that kind of thing latches onto all of us. Maybe your thing wasn't humor, but it was something, right? Maybe it was that you... We're compensating for the fact that you never felt like you could live up to your mother or your father's expectations. Even into adulthood, I know that we still struggle with living up to our mother and our father's expectations. As a pastor, I have known 70 and 80 year old people still trying to live up to their mother and father's expectations. Maybe it was labels that were placed on you by other people, including maybe even your childhood church. Maybe it was the mean girls at school who commented on your body, or maybe it was just the magazines who comment on your body, even though they don't actually say words. gay kids are taught pretty early when they realize that they're queer pretty early in elementary school or middle school that they have to act straight to fit in and black children are learn pretty easy that if they're going to survive they have to act white and girls learn very early that there is a kind of femininity that allows them to succeed in a man's world and to break those rules as to be rejected in a man's world. And so while your story may be different than mine and how you respond to your story may be different than mine, the fact is that I think David Benner's words ring true. The roots of our pretend self lie in our childhood discovery that we can secure love by presenting ourselves in the most flattering light. In short, we learn to fake it, appearing as we think other important others want us to be and ignoring the evidence. To the contrary, one of the things I love about David Benner's book that we're doing the book club through right now is that he doesn't just make statements like that. He then will back up and he'll say, Okay, let's examine that. And he says, like, Well, what, what, how do we respond when we develop these pretend selves to navigate the world or to, to receive affection? What, what does that? What are the, the, the forms that, presents, that pretend self takes? And so he, he laid out a couple of these, and I thought that they were really helpful. For example, he said that some of us, our personalities, our false selves are forged in reactionaryism. This is, we experience trauma or negativity, and we decide that we are not going to let anyone ever hurt us again. Do you know anybody like that? so emotionally closed off because they experience some wound and they are determined to never allow themselves to be hurt again. So we preempt the hurt by embracing. Sometimes we embrace the opposite of whatever the other people expect of us. For example, have you ever met, like, the family where there is, like, a very proper mother and father and they're just like, you're going to sit up? and you were gonna talk straight, and you were gonna have proper manners, and you were gonna look straight, and all of your clothes are gonna be ironed, and you were never, ever, ever gonna say the inappropriate thing. And they've got like three or four children, and three of them are perfectly well-behaved, but they've got that one kid who's like, I'm getting out of bed, and I'm going to church, and my hair is gonna be messy, and that child is like, I am not going, you, you. You, some of you are that child. You might not know it, but like you're that person. Or you're, or you're the person, and, and I am very much like that. It's not in the same way. I did not have like proper parents, but I very much had wounds that i react to. And one of the things that I have had to learn through the years is that the more I react to what I hate and become the exact opposite without reflecting on it, the more the original wound is still controlling me. This is the, uh, this is the contradiction and non-conformity, right? Do you remember when you were like in high school and there was those one kids that were like, I'm not gonna conform, but they all also dressed like each other? Reactions without reflections are just us living in our false selves. Another way that this happens so uh, another way that this happens is through rationalization, self-deception by means of reason. The false self understands that it is in a situation that is not right, that is not good, that is not moral, where th- that it is in fact in a false self, but it chooses to live in that false self by rationalizing it. We all do this. How many of you this week heard your crazy uncle say something racist and you had to decide, hmm, is it worth making Thanksgiving awkward? Or somebody at work? Or maybe, I've experienced this a few times and maybe some of you have, you've worked with organizations that you felt were inherently unhealthy. And maybe at some point you did say to yourself that it wasn't a rationalization, You say, I know that they don't have good business practices. I know maybe they don't treat women well, or maybe they uh, have uh, unethical practices globally, or they don't treat their partners very well. And then maybe at the beginning, you're like, well, you know what? Like, I could be an agent of change. Like, I can change things. I can work from the inside, and I can change things. But then you've been there for a decade, and you're like, hmm. You realize that you're not gonna make a change, that the organization can't be changed, but also you're making good money now, and you're like, mm, I don't know, like I gotta feed children, right? And so what we do is we rationalize. And I'm not saying that this is, you know, it, it, this is a hard decision to make, right? We, it, it does make Thanksgiving awkward when you speak, about things. It does make for really difficult decisions when you start thinking like, what is it doing to my soul to continue to work for an organization that has these kinds of flaws, recognizing that a lot of organizations have flaws, right? We see this as well a lot in religion. You can nod your head. We see this a lot in religion. such a great youth group there, but maybe we just deal with the homophobia. The final way, Benner says, is through denial. That is, downplaying our feelings is how we choose to live in the false self. We downplay feelings that are obviously present. Has your spouse or your partner ever asked you, Greg, I keep looking at you, and it's because you're being so attentive, but I'm not looking at you because I think these things are about you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay, just, I'm just confirming. Greg's just in the front row. Have you ever, have you or your, your partner ever or your spouse ever s- s- said to the other are you okay? And you know that you're not okay? But what do you say? I'm fine. All the time. Now I can look at him. Now I can look at him. <laughs> the the denial is a choice that we make to live in a false reality that pretends that reality is something other than what it really is we all do this some of it is just trying to navigate when it is appropriate to bring something up some of us are a little more habitual about it it's called passive aggression and the problem is is the more we live in false reality of denial the more habitual it becomes the more unhealthy the rest of our relationships are we all probably navigated this person at Thanksgiving, right? Grandma, do you want any help? No, I'm fine. But you know she's not fine because she's tossing pants around. Denial is our choice to live in a pretend self that pretends reality is something other than it is. And so the point is here just simply to acknowledge that we all do this kind of thing. We all do it. We all opt for unrealities. But sometimes it may be appropriate in order to navigate a relationship and get to a better place. I don't need to say everything I'm thinking at every single moment. That's not appropriate. However, that should be a strategic decision that moves toward health, not merely avoidance. Because the more we live in these false selves and this false reality and we never get around to having hard conversations, the more we destroy our souls and the souls of the people around us. This is what is happening when a family is dominated by a passive-aggressive person, just as an example, right? Everybody feels it. The whole system is set up for everybody to feel their internal burning rage, but the system is set up to where nobody is allowed to say anything about it or they don't know how to say anything about it. And the whole system feels skeezy, but we're all discipled into it. And it is destructive to all of us. It's the same thing that happens on the flip other end of the person who breaks out in rage, right? We are all discipled to feel their rage and say nothing in return lest they get more angry and rage more. But it's all a lie. And there is, according to Thomas Merton, he says, there is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than being immersed in unreality. For life is is maintained and nourished by us in our vital relationship with reality. So the antidote to the present self is of course the opposite the true self. There can be there could be no transformation of this of our lives that does not involve a commitment to reality. Telling the truth about where we are, who we are, what our relationship is. I said months ago that the power of an idol is that it determines what you can see, what you can hear, and what you can see. An idol is specifically created by us in order to blind us to certain realities about ourselves and our world. We create an idol in order to filter the truth so that we are allowed to live in the unreality. Or we create the idol to filter the truth in order to force other people to live in an unreality so that they can only see part of the truth. And thus to build, we build around ourselves an incomplete reality at best or a completely fabricated reality at worst. This is the entirety, it feels like sometimes, of our political situation in America, and I am not trying to do some kind of both sidesism here, but it happens on both sides. You ever meet somebody who they cannot hear a criticism of their political party? Because to do that would be to admit that their party is not God's party or their God, their party is not the moral party or their party actually has problems. And listen, I have political leanings, I have political preferences, but this happens across the spectrum. What Christians are supposed to be is a people who can tell the truth even about our own party. But we live in a nation of people, including Christian people, who are completely incapable of doing that. And what we have to do is not only look at the fact that we can't tell the truth about our own party. We have to ask the next level question, why can't we tell the truth about our own party? And that is a much scarier question. To back it up just a little bit so that we don't feel as scary about it, we can look at somebody else for a minute. In the 18th and 19th century, Christian white slave owners had to justify owning humans. So how did they do it? Three things. One, they said, Those humans are not humans, they're animals. So step one, dehumanize. Step two, say as all animals, they need us. Step three, act as if they enjoy it. These, quote animals, not only need us, but it's good for them. This is how slavery was justified in the 18th and 19th century. Now, here's the thing. Karl Marx would come along and he would give a Marxist critique of this. And what would his answer be? Why do these people dehumanize enslaved people? That's about economics. They have an economic agenda. They need to make money to acknowledge that these people are human, would be a threat to their economic power. I do think that that's real. I think that's a valid critique. But I think there's something more than that going on. I was recently reading Lies My History, or Lies My Teacher Told Me, and they quoted, they were talking about this very question, and they quoted a 17th, uh, 18th century uh, French social philosopher, I'm not, I, I don't speak French, so Montesquieu, he said this, He said, it is impossible for us to suppose these creatures to be men, because allowing them to be men, a suspicion would follow that we ourselves are not Christian. I appreciate this critique because there's room in it for economic power, but it goes deeper into these motivations that suggest that my entire world is set up around the assumption that I am a Christian, that Christians do the moral thing to other humans, that Christians do the loving thing to other Christians, and part of the reason why I must dehumanize My enslaved subjects is because to humanize them and acknowledge their dignity and their worth and the fact that they're created in the image of God would be a critique against my very foundational religious self. We do these things for incredibly complicated reasons, but the fact is, I think what we have to be able to continue to do is not only label what is being done wrong, but get at the root motivations for why wrongs are done, including why we participate in the wrongs we do. To admit that enslaved Africans were humans would require them to admit that they are not the chosen people of God they thought they were. That they were not moral or loving. They had created an idol that determined beforehand what they could see and what they could hear. And if an idol determines what we can see and hear, then here's the point. God calls us to see and to listen. How much of that is actually happening in our society? A willingness to see and a willingness to hear. Spiritual transformation involves a purification of sight. We have to learn to see and accept what is really there. So... I said a few weeks ago that we do not, as Wesleyan Christians, as Methodists, we do not begin our understanding of the good news with sin. So the first thing you need to know about yourself is not that you're a sinner. The first thing you need to know about yourself is that you were created by a self-giving, loving God. And that sets the context for everything else. But we also said, because we are created by love and we are created to respond to love, sin is therefore anything that violates holy love for God, neighbor, and self. Whereas we were created by and for love, sin is anything that props itself against love. It's not sin is not an abstract violation of a moral principle. Sin is a violation of holy love for which we were created, which means then that part of knowing ourselves and purifying our sight means dealing honestly with our sin and why we violate Holy love to begin with it means telling the truth that sometimes even our most noble actions are tainted with self-centeredness you ever meet somebody who just like serves and serves and serves and serves and it becomes such a part of their identity that they serve they're really bitter at everyone else because they don't serve as much as them but their identity is rooted in, in that they're, they're serving out of their own sort of false self rather than in a desire to give themselves away. All of us have these inner motivations that don't exactly line up with our outward loving behavior, but this is where sin is most hidden because it hides itself behind loving acts. If sin is a violation of holy love and our behaviors appear to be loving, then we can hide, right? And so let's go back to even the scripture we read last week about Adam and Eve hiding in the Garden of Eden. There is something in me that puts on fig leaves of concealment and brings cosmic chaos upon the earth. There is something in me that loves darkness rather than light that rejects God and thereby rejects my deepest reality as a human person made in the image and likeness of God. I love this quote because notice how sin is discussed here. I am made in the image of God to give love, to receive love, to send love back and forth. My sin is all that merely props itself against God's loving intentions for us. We cannot sin, understand sin without first understanding that we're loved. Now, I want you to notice how easy we can slip in to these other assumptions. This is actually where I disagree pretty stridently with the book that we've been using for our book club. The book that I have favorably quoted even in this sermon and through the last three weeks. David Benner says this. He says, sin is who we are. Sin is fundamentally a matter of ontology, which is like a $10 word being being. Not simply morality. To be a human is to be a sinner. It is to be broken. Now, for all the wonderful, helpful things that Benner says, I think ultimately this is also a false reality. He doesn't intend it, but it's a false reality. And here's why. My ontology, that is my being, is not sinful merely by virtue of me being human, right? He says, sin is a matter of ontology. To be human is to be a sinner. This is a fundamentally flawed way to think about sin. If that were the case, then Adam and Eve would have been sinners by virtue of being created quite apart from anything else that happened in that garden, or Jesus would have been sinner because, we, because he was human. If it's a part of human ontology, human being, then Jesus would have been a sinner once he was conceived in Mary's womb and was 100% human. So I think Benner gets this wrong, and I think he gets it wrong in a, in a way that a lot of Protestant Christians and maybe Catholic Christians, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they get it wrong this way too. Sin is not a matter of my being. Sin is an invasion and a denial of my ontology. Sin is an invasion and a denial of my being. Sin is an invasion and a denial of my humanness, not inherent to my humanness. It is a denial that I am loved, that I am lovable, and I am capable of loving in return. And I think that makes the good news even better news. Because sin is not a necessary part of who I am. Sin is therefore also not a necessary part of what I do. This is what I think the Methodist movement, if we were healthy, would contribute to our world at this time. things do not have to be the way they are. We are not so fundamentally flawed in our very creation that we are beyond God helping us make better decisions. Wesleyan Methodist Christians ought to be at the same time the most pessimistic and the most hopeful people. Because we should be able to say the, the 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 ill of sin is that it violates God's holy love. The hope of the good news is that that violation never has to have the final say. It doesn't even have to be with you. Now listen, if you talk to some Christians, what will they say? Well, I'm just a sinner, and I'm always gonna be a sinner and it's always just gonna be that way. What can I say? I'm just, I'm imperfect. And John Wesley would say, that's your false self talking. That's you giving yourself an excuse not to live in holy love for which you were created. Wesley would say that the Holy Spirit is so profoundly with us and so profoundly having shaped our new birth more than our old birth such that you and I can right now be a people who choose holy love all the time. All the time. That sounds scary, doesn't it? That it, it actually is supposed to be good news, but it sounds scary because what it sounds like to us is moral perfectionism, that I'm just always going to get it right. But that's not what Wesley's saying. His understanding of the gospel is not mere moralism. For Wesley, it's not about moral behavior. It is about being a people who choose love. And yes, that has moral implications, but morals are the secondary factor. Choosing love is the first thing. That is what we are about. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be a people of love. So how do we become a people of love? Well, Wesley would say that the first thing we do is become fuller. We tell the truth more fully about our sin. David Benner talks about in his book how he's a counselor, right? So he was doing counseling with uh, this man, and he realized like, that this man is uh, uh, addicted to lust. I'll just say it that way. And so he said, this is the presenting issue, and so he starts to work with this guy, and after a while, he realizes, he says, behind the addiction, we discovered after a while a longing for intimacy, not a reservoir for lust. So the lust is the presenting subject, but there's a longing and a need that rests under there that is being met in a false way. But he digs even deeper. He says that he goes back and he realizes over time with his patient that the lack of intimacy was actually rooted in the man's resentment and sense of entitlements in relationships and his bitterness with how his relationships had worked out. He thought he deserved more from life and so he was taking it in his brain. And these things were all rooted in messages he had received as a child. Here's what I love about the way Benner tells this story. To fight sin, he did not merely need to modify his behavior. What he needed to do was receive the part of himself, the sinful part, to receive it as an indicator that something deeper was happening. He had to listen to his wounds to see what they might tell him about what he longed for and needed as a person. You see, I think that the way we think as Christians is that if I just modify my behavior on the outside, if I just perform mere moralism, but moralism is just a way to live in the false self. You can be moral and not be loving. We think we just modify our behavior. It's going to be okay. And the good news of the gospel is not moralism. Repentance is not moralism. Repentance is not merely about behavior. It is about the transformation of the self into a person of love. So, what we need to do is get at our root sin. So this is where I'm going to leave you today. My suggestion if you want to be someone who doesn't just acknowledge your surface sin, but gets at your root needs and desires, I have found the Enneagram to be incredibly helpful. The Enneagram is not a perfect tool. It is, in fact, just a tool with human imperfections. So this is not necessarily something that's just going to save you or something. But I have found it helpful. On the surface... I don't know if you have ever experienced this of me, but on the surface, my sins are anger and excess. But those things merely mask deeper needs. The deeper need for feeling autonomous and feeling self-reliant, which are themselves presentations of a much deeper need to feel like I can trust the people around me to love me even when I'm different than them to allow me to be curious instead of control me the Enneagram has been helpful for me in unpacking these things so this is what I'm going to do I'm going to end the sermon here this week I'm going to put a link to an online sort of form that you can fill out and you can just explore your own Enneagram number. It's not all that fancy or anything, but it's the beginning of a journey that I think uh, the reason I love it is it doesn't just it's not just like a personality thing. It gets at your motives and why you are the way you are. So I'm going to give that to you uh, this week in the newsletter. If I can have our communion servers come forward at this time Um, I love that we receive communion every week because I think it unmasks a lot of the false selves that we have, particularly the ones built around consumerism and church being about us. Even if my sermon is terrible, communion is always wonderful. And so Christ our Lord invites to his table... We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.